thank you all for coming out tonight on a cold, rainy night. Um, we are grateful that Dick Forbes has agreed once again to be with us. Dick is a friend of ours personally, and he's a friend of the ministry. He's an excellent counselor, therapist, godly man, and he puts humor in every, every time he speaks. So let me just tell you a little bit about Dick. He's going to talk about um, what family members may experience when a child goes astray. I'll just leave that at that. Dick is the president of Forbes Counseling Service. 30 years of experience counseling individuals, couples, families on a variety of issues, including conflict, stress, trauma, depression, addiction, marriage and family issues, so forth and so on. He's got his bachelor's degree in psychology from Georgia State and his master's degree in counseling from Western, which is in Portland, Oregon. So, Dick, I'm going to pray for you, then welcome you to the podium. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for Dick and his heart for you and his willingness always to come share nuggets of wisdom with our group, God. We just pray tonight that you will speak through him in a mighty way and that we will leave here encouraged and hopeful. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, I always am grateful to be here. Um, And, um, you know, if you're here tonight because you have a prodigal, you're in pain. You know, they just acknowledge that the pain's there. Um, But but before I get started, you know, before I depress you, um, uh, I always like, there's a, uh, this, this guy named Abraham, who was a tailor, went to see his friend Caleb one day, and and Abraham says to his friend Taylor, he says, uh, he says, Caleb, Caleb, you want to hear something funny? He goes, my son, he's become a Christian. And uh, Caleb says, you want to hear something funny? My son, too, he's become a Christian. What are we to do? Well, let's go ask the rabbi. So off to temple they go, and, and they get to the rabbi, and they say, Rabbi, Rabbi, our sons have become Christians. What are we to do? And the rabbi says, uh, you want to hear something funny? My son, he too has become a Christian. What are we to do? And let's ask the Lord God Almighty. And they go and they say, God of Abraham and God of Isaac and God of Jacob, our sons have become Christians. What are we to do? And there was this long silence. And then there was this booming voice from heaven that goes, you want to hear something funny? So, <laughs> has nothing to do with anything tonight, but just always thought it was a funny joke. All right, I, and you know the way John introduced it, you know, it's, it really is. You know, what do you go through as a parent um, when uh, when you have a prodigal? And and I, every time I come, I always I tell Fair, I say I, I want to give something for the parents, you know, that that is encouraging and comforting to you. Um, and I'm going to refer to to the prodigal story a little bit that that uh, highlights what we want to talk about in here. But you know, there's there's a a gazillion emotions that we go through when we go with a prodigal. Um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, but we're embarrassed. You know, where did I go wrong as a parent? You know, what, what happened along the way? Why are they acting this way? Um, we, we isolate because we're afraid to tell people. We're afraid to get out into community. We're afraid to find other people because we think we're the only one that's going through it. Um, and, and so that we, we, we go through them some of that. You ever seen when they blow a building up? It implodes. We implode. We go inwardly as part of that. Um, we experience a tr- you know a tremendous amount of shame as a parent. Um, now, real quick, I didn't say this, but how, how do I know all this stuff? Well, I got two prodigals. You know, they not with drugs and alcohol, but I just haven't had a relationship with them in, in about twelve years. So I'm, I'm speaking firsthand of these emotions that that you go through over time. Um, like I said, there's so much shame that we experience. And then when we experience shame, we try to make up for it somewhere else down the road. You know, I'll, I'll do anything to conquer that shame. There was a, um, there was a psychologist that was uh, apparently worked for um, Lenin or Stalin during World War II that this psychologist could get anybody to confess to anything that Stalin accused them of. And, um, you know, after the war, this Western reporter got to interview this guy, and he said, "He said, you know, rumor has it you could get anybody to confess to, 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 to something." And uh, I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "He goes, well, how did you do that?" And he goes, "Well, I used the Mongolian peasant theory." And I, I know all of y'all have heard of this. So <clears throat> he said, "Well, I don't know what that is." He goes, "What is that?" And he goes, "Well, we go find a Mongolian peasant, poorest people on the face of the earth." And, 
And we bring them into this office, and the office is very authoritarian. You know, it's got the hardwoods and the brass and the oriental rugs, and, and there's a very crisp general sitting behind this desk. And we put him in front of the, the general, and the Mongolian says, you know, you know why am I here? And, he, and, the, and the general says, I've got a 1,000 rubles for you in this desk drawer. And he goes, well, what do I have to do to do, get those? He said, all you got to do is push these buttons up here. And he says, well, what happens when I push those buttons? He goes, well, somebody dies. And he goes, just some random person? And he goes, well, no, it's somebody we want to die. And he goes, somebody I don't know? He said, you don't know them. And he goes, I can't do that. But think what you could do with a 1,000 rubles. And, and so he finally talked to the guy, and he pushed the button, and somebody died. And five years later, the, the peasant commits suicide. And, you know, they go, he said, we go back in and get what's left over and put it back in the coffer. And, and his point was this. When you and I experience shame... You know, we'll do anything to make up what we did back there. If we feel like we failed as a parent, if we feel like we failed in other areas of our life, we want to compensate it in the here and now. Does that make sense? And we do. And that's the kind of shame that we, we experience sometimes as a parent because we'll bend over backwards, you know, because we feel shame and we don't, we don't want to reconcile things. And that's not always the healthiest thing to do. So, so we experience a tremendous amount of shame during this process. Anger is part of the, the emotions that we go through when we're going through something like this. Well, who are you angry at? Well, I'm angry at family members sometimes because they're not real kind. You know, Uncle, Uncle Joe, you know, kind of beat up on my kid because he's a prodigal. Society. Um, you know, just others in general, it, the, the tendency is that, well, what did you do wrong as a parent? You know, when I went, went, was going through this, I, that, was, that was the greatest fear. I always thought that people thought, well, what did you do, Forbes? Why aren't your kids talking to you? What, what did you do in that process? And you know yourself, you know your story that probably all of y'all were good parents. And kids just go off the rails sometimes. And <clears throat> so you want to defend yourself, you want to put it back out there that, that you know, I didn't do what, I'm, what, what I feel like everybody thinks that I did along the way. You're cheated. You know, what are you cheated of? Well, holidays are coming up right now. You get cheated out of holidays, birthdays, uh, significant days that take place. And so, you know, dreams end up dying. And, and I'll talk about that in a, more, in a minute. We also become very desperate in the process. Um, and, and so we, 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 we do some of those things to alleviate the guilt and the shame that we feel like the Mongolian present did. We grieve. What are you grieving? Loss of a relationship. There's a death there. I, I think probably the, the greatest pain that you and I ever experience in life is the loss of love. You know, we don't want it to end. You know, when we bury somebody, it ends. Love ends. It just does. It's not reciprocated back. And so when we have a prodigal, you know, many times that, that love has ended. And that the greatest pain is inside of us during that time that, that's there. Um, secrets, you know, if we're that well-put-together family, you know, we have that myth of perfectionism. We look good on Facebook. We look good at church. Prodigals tend to expose the secrets of the family. Remember the Wizard of Oz? What's behind that curtain? You know? That's what ends up happening many, many times. And that, that cannot be a bad thing necessarily. And there's envy. There's self-pity that we go through. And so all these emotions that we, we experience when we have this prodigal, it's a huge stressor on marriages many times. I mean, it can, it can lead to divorce because the blame game kicks in. Well, if you hadn't done this, well, you did this. I think the greatest thing that, that, that we experience is there's a true assault on community when we get a prodigal. What do I mean by that? Well, th this is where in the, in the story of the prodigal son, when the son came to his dad and he said, I, I want my inheritance now. Basically what he said is, I want you dead. Because he didn't get the inheritance till, till they were till they were gone. So there's this, there's this disillusionment of the, of the family that begins to take place. And, 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 and it was before the father died right there. Um, culturally, that dad, uh, if you go to the Middle East, you know, you ask somebody, what, what, would you, what would you think of this situation? They would have been slapped. They would have been driven out with a shoe. They would have been run out of the family forever, even saying something like that that was there. So, so there's an assault on the community that's there. There's humiliation. Why? Everybody knows. You know, everybody knows what that prodigal did. Culturally, he went against his culture. He went against his people, his religion, his nation at that time. Um, you know, there's assault economically, you know, when we have prodigals. That kid wanted a third of, of dad's estate. They didn't have ATMs back then. 
you know, he had to sell property. Probably good for them. They didn't have them. So, and and so he lost a third of, of what went 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 down that dream. And 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 then the siblings. You know, there's the elder brother in this story who was bitter, resentful. And many times within prodigal families, there is a, two or three other children that are just mad as heck at that sibling. They're resentful towards them. They're angry towards them. So we're having all these things come at us when when we experience this uh, along the way. And so you know, how do I respond to that? You know, how do I deal with that in, in, in that process that's there? And then, of course, like I said, dreams die. Um, and and they, they come to, to be where when those dreams die, then, then a lot of things happen it that way. Now, I'm, I'm describing a broken heart is what I'm describing. Dro- broken heart of a parent that begins to take place. And, and that's probably the most difficult thing that we have to face is how do I deal with that broken heart that's, that, that's inside of me? And we want to ask the question, why do kids hurt parents? You know, why do they actually go out of the way to hurt parents that, that are there? And, and hurt is one of those things where hurt's, hurt's really um, a primary emotion. You and I experience fear and hurt are probably the two biggies that happen in our life. And out of that, out of fear and hurt, becomes anger. Anger is typically a secondary emotion. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, your initial emotion isn't anger, it's fear. And then it turns into, and now where's my six shooter? And the same thing with hurt. When we get wounded very deeply, it turns into a tremendous amount of anger that begins to take place. Now, I love what Fair, I read this moment, and this has a lot to do, is, is the letting go thing. What does that look like? I mean, the preacher man's always saying, surrender, surrender, let it go, let it go. You know, we, we sing the song, let it go. And, and, and you know, I, it, it, it dawned on me one day that letting go or surrender, whatever you want to call it, what does a surrendered person look like? You know, not waving the white flag and hands up kind of thing, but it, it all comes down to this. And, and basically she read this, surrender or letting go is you quit trying to control and you quit trying to manipulate. That's it. It's that simple. And can I ever get to that place? Because what am I being driven out of? I'm being driven out of fear. You know, if I let go, and letting go is not equated to hopelessness. It's not. Uh, letting go is that, you know what, by golly, I'm going to stay on this side of the fence. Um, I, I, I think I use this illustration. I use it a lot with my clients. But, you know, when you all leave here tonight, go to the dollar store and get yourself a hula hoop. You know, and take that hula hoop, and you put that hula hoop on the ground, and you stand in the middle of that hula hoop. Everything inside that hula hoop is your business. Come on in. So, so everything inside that hula hoop is, is, is your business. What do you have control over? Well, honesty, integrity, hard work, kindness, charity, gratefulness, gratitude, how I treat people. That's it. Everything outside of that are things that you and I don't have control of. Where do we get mostly upset from? is we're all looking outside the hula hoop, focusing on somebody else's behavior. Why aren't they doing what they're supposed to be doing? Why aren't they doing the right thing? Why aren't they calling me back? Why aren't they texting me back? We get resentful. We get angry. We get bent out of shape. And, and the more that I focus on, on the things that I have control over and let go of trying to control and manipulate other people's lives, the happier I am. I, I just am. I'm, I'm a much happier person. I'm more productive. I'm more at peace. And, and, and that's just part of it. But we've got all these emotions going on inside of us that fear kicks in. And how do we parent out of fear sometimes? How does fear come out? Fear comes out in the need to be right. Fear comes out in anger. Fear comes out in control. Fear comes in out in last word freaks. Fear comes out in judgment and criticism. Fear comes out big time in people pleasing. And, and if I'm that kind of person, all that is I'm, I'm being driven out of fear. And I make fear-based decisions as a parent which is typically not right. I know when I've done it in the past, it's always been a knee-jerk. It hasn't been thought through. It's been this because it's been driven out of fear. And I'm not talking about trembling your boots kind of fear or Friday the 13th kind of movie fear. I'm talking about fear that you and I don't recognize. We just don't. It's just, it's just kind of normal for us. But the more that I become aware of these things, and listen, pain will drive us to become aware of these things. It just does. Pain will change you. It will change your heart, it will change your mind, and it, it will change every aspect of your life. And, and, and the things start to become what really matter in life. So, so all that said, in, 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 the, in the letting letting go part right there that we have to deal with, 
Job 5, 7 said, Yet a man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. It's just there. It's just there. There's no getting out of this without some struggles through this whole process that we have to go through. All right, so so letting go is is a big part of what what I wanted to talk about tonight. And that that father, the prodigal son's father, um, he let him go. He didn't chase him. He did not go after him. He let him go because he realized one thing, that that son was probably better off in the hands of God than in his own hands. Now, again, it doesn't mean that dad wasn't aching. It doesn't mean that dad wasn't looking down that dusty road every day. It it just means that dad, he he knew that he had to let go. And as a parent, I get it. It's so hard to let go of that. You you know, I I can only speculate, you know, but when Christ was on the cross and Mary was down there as a mother, do you not think she wanted to pull him off? Do you not think as a mother, her heart would just, let me take the cross. Let me get up there for you, for her child. I get it. I know that pain. You know, and, and maybe she had it figured out that that's where he needed to be, but I can't imagine. She was human like the rest of us. And, and so that pain is there that we feel so oftentimes, and, and that's what makes it so hard to let go sometimes, to really step away from something that, that's not doing them any good or doing me any good. We experience that separation and loss that, that begins to take. And what is loss? You know, loss is that, that sense of, of, of disillusionment. Nothing feels right with the world. I guarantee, you know, the pain that you and I feel about prodigals, it, it, you go to sleep thinking about it, you wake up thinking about it, you go to the bathroom thinking about it. It doesn't leave you. There's no compartmentalizing this. There's no putting it in a box on the shelf and I'll pick it up at 5 o'clock this afternoon. It's just, it's, it's, it's fluid in us in, in this process that we're there. So when we lose something... <laughs> that whole sense of loss begins to take place over and over and over and over again. The grief kicks in. The darkness kicks in during that time period. And, and am I getting you all real depressed? So, okay. We'll make sure I'm not, not, not too far in there. So, um, but, but again, I always go back to you and I have a choice during this process. I can either become bitter or better. And which do I choose? And there's a fine line sometimes. And we vacillate sometimes. You know, you know we, we become envious of other families. We become envious of other parents, of their perfect child, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, unless you've lived an absolute charmed life, and I don't know anybody that has, there's a story behind every face. Some of us just are willing to admit it and, and to put it out there. You know, and when we do put it out there, it, there's a freedom in it. Uh, you, you remember the movie um, Crocodile Dundee? Do you remember the scene where he's in New York and he's at this big high society party and, and the, I can't remember the girlfriend's, Linda. Was that her name, Linda? Whatever it was. Okay. He's, she's introducing him to all these, these people. And so they walk away from this woman and, and, uh, and she goes, well, well, she sees a psychiatrist. And he goes, oh, you mean like a mate? And she goes, yeah, I guess like a mate. And he goes, uh, and, and he goes why does she see a psychiatrist? Well, to talk out her problems and to bring them out and deal with them. And, and you know, remember he was from Walkabout, Australia, and there was just Wally at the bar in Walkabout. And he goes, well, and Walkabout, if we've got a problem, we tell Wally. Wally tells everybody in the community it's not a problem anymore. That's <laughs> so, right. It's out in the open, and, we, and, and that's how it's dealt with. And, and there's some truth to that. There's some absolute truth because we tend to internalize this stuff. And I go back to the emotions of embarrassment and shame. And, and secretiveness that we want to keep because those feelings are there. This isn't something you just go out and shout from the rooftops. You find those people that you know are safe. You find those people that you feel absolutely comfortable with that, that aren't going to give you the third degree or give you, you know, you got some kind of disease and get away from you at, at that point. So we go through this. We go through the losing. We go through the grieving and, and, and everything that goes with it is part of that process. Now, what about guilt? You know, how, how do I deal with, with the guilt that, that's, that's there? Um, you know, guilt is w- one of those things that, is it real guilt or is it, is, it, um, is it that false guilt? And I always ask myself the question, when I'm feeling guilty about something, I always say, would this be a sin in the eyes of God? And if it's not, not guilt. You know, guilt's a useless emotion, unless you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. Or, you know, you are without Christ. And that's when we should feel guilty at that point. But, but the rest of it is that you feel guilty as a parent. 
you know, what, what, what are you doing that's sinful right now in the eyes of God? What are you doing to perpetuate that guilt that's going on inside of you? And, and that's, that's what we want to deal with. So we deal with the guilt that's there, and, and we have to do it. Envy and self-pity, which I, I mentioned early. You know, envy, like I said, of parents who've had successful kids. There's that comparison trap that we can get into. And it's, and it's difficult. You know, well, their, their kid's off in medical school. Mine's over here, you know, his third round in jail right now. And, and so it's not uncommon that we feel envy. We, we, we fall into self-pity that, that, that's there. Listen, I, lick your wounds. I mean, I, I, you know, lick your wounds. It's, it's just part of the process that we go through. But you can't stay there. You can't stay there if you're going to be an effective parent. And, and again, it does attack us. It does do those things, that comparison thing. Um, part, of, part of perfectionism is um, we compare ourselves to other people. You know, I should be, I ought to be, I must be, why, if only I had been kind of stuff. And, and that's part of that whole comparison. It, it, it gets us into that, that, that vicious cycle of, of believing that we've got to be perfect. Well, you know what? Unless you're um, Tesla or, you know, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or, you know, any of those guys, there's always somebody richer than us. Always. You know, there's always somebody skinnier than me. You know, it's always, you know, it's always some of these kids who are better well-behaved. There's always going to be those things. And when I go down that path of comparison, I get myself in trouble. It stirs the emotion up inside of me. <laughs> and that's what I want to avoid again. So it, it, these, are, these are things that I've just got to become aware of. The, the first step in change for any of us is awareness. Am I aware that I've got a problem? That's the first step in, 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 a, in an addict's recovery is they finally go, you know what, I've got a problem. And, and there's some self-awareness that begins to, to, to take place on them. So we got envy, we got self-pity. You know what? There's a limit to our pain. There just is. You know the old saying, you know, you know God's not going to give you more than you can handle? Well, yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. He gives us pain that we cannot handle. And that's the dependency upon him. And, and you know, there's, there's few words that can really paint the picture of what's going on inside of you internally. You can tell people about it, but unless you've been there, unless you've actually walked in these shoes before, then it's, it's going to be hard for other people to stay that, that's there. Um, how long will the pain last? You know, what if the pain never goes away? It, it's, it, 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 it's easy to diagnose the pain. It's impossible to give it a prognosis. It just is. We can all diagnose that there's pain here, but how long is it going to last? What's going to be the outcome? What's going to be the prognosis of it? It's impossible to do. And, and, and we begin to ask ourselves, you know, what if I can't change the situation? Well, maybe that's a start. And realizing that you cannot change the situation that's there. And it does affect us. You know, all the things that I've read off, it makes us feel like a failure. It makes us feel useless and lonely and confused, like quitting. And, 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 and things that we tell ourselves is... I'll, you know, what they've done to my family, I, it's going to be hard for me to forgive them. I'll never trust them again. Um, you, you know, it, it, do I believe? And people tell me to cheer up. People tell me to hang on, all this kind of stuff. But we're telling ourselves all this talk inside of our head that's going on. But there is a limit to our pain that, that we can bear. And, and, but I've got to realize that my pain is not who I am. It is not who I am. It doesn't define me as, as that person. My pain either makes me bitter or better is what it does in the bottom line. And I hopefully I keep going down that path of getting better. And, and it may not change. There's no guarantees. Over the years, you know, you hear things from other people. Well, they'll come back. You know, they'll come around. What if they don't? You know, I've been hearing that for 12 years. You know, they'll, they'll come around. They'll grow up. Well, they're grown up. You know, what do we do with that? And I've got to be realistic about that. I've got to recognize that I've got to live in the here and now. I cannot live five years from now. I cannot. When I start living in the future, I get into trouble. I get anxious. I get worried. I, get, I despair. What if it never changes? What if it never gets better? That's not where we need to be living through this whole process as we're trying to get better. But there are limits to our suffering, and that's where, again, I think that we truly take them to... to um, and, and we, we put them out before God. You, you ever, I came across this old hymn called um, I Gotta Tell Jesus. Tell me about this hymn. It's a great hymn. You know, I just happened to come across it and I started reading it, and, and it's just, I gotta tell Jesus. 
And so I looked up the hymn because I always wanted to know the history of the hymn. And it was this old Scottish preacher. Uh, and I don't remember his name or anything. This was back in the 1800s. And he was out and he, he went to visit this woman who um, was in all kinds of problems and everything. And she worried. She was anxious. And, and she said, do you have any words for me? And he said, the only thing I can tell you is, is tell it to Jesus. And she, it was like the light bulb went off with her. You know, she said, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. This is a spiritual battle that you and I are in. It just is. We are in a truly, truly spiritual warfare. The enemy is not the other, other, other spouse. The enemy is not out there. The enemy wants to crush our families. That's the true enemy that, that wants to do this and destroy us along the way. But anyway, he, 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 when she kept repeating and repeating it, this guy went home and wrote a hymn called Tell It to Jesus. It's a great hymn. The words in it. I, I don't know what the tune is or anything. Um, there's, there's a lot of great stuff in old hymns. I'm, I don't know if y'all can, but that's just a side note. There's some great stuff out there that, that we do. There's some great music today, too. Um, you, you know, I mentioned about keeping secrets, the Wizard of Oz that, that's there, pulling back that curtain. You know, if, if one of y'all's kids had cancer, would not everybody rally around that kid? Why don't we rally around the prodigal? What is the difference? They have a disease many times. They have a sickness of heart that's going on with them. Why are we so afraid of that kid? Why are we so afraid of, of embracing that kid? We'll do anything under the sun for that cancer kid. You know, we'll make a wish foundation. You know, we'll have baseball players, football players come visit them. All kinds of stuff begins to take place. But I've always thought, why don't we rally around the prodigal? Why don't we? I, I think for one thing, I think we're uncomfortable with other people's pain. We just are. We don't know what to say to the other person. We don't know how to act with the other person. But many times it's not saying or acting around the other person. It's the being there. It's just being there and showing up. Um, uh, a guy named Joseph Bailey, uh, back in the early 1900s, a hymn writer, he, he wrote this book. He had seven children, and, and he had to bury three of his sons. And he wrote this book called The, the View from a Hearse. And it, I just remember in this book, he described after his third son's funeral, this man came and sat next to him and went on and on about the providence of God, the wilderness of God, the love of God, the goodness of God. And, 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 and Bailey in this book goes, he was kind of funny what he said. He goes, I was so glad when he left. But he said, this other man came and sat next to me and didn't say a word. He just sat with me. He answered some of my questions and he just sat with me. And he goes, I hated it when he left. You know, when we have a prodigal, when we have a family, it's a prod- we need to be that kind of person. I just show up. I don't know what it is. You know, we good Southerners, we bring over our green bean casserole when we're experiencing grief and go, sorry about your loss. But it, it, it is. It's, it goes mo- so much further than that that we need to do when, we're, when, when we begin to accept the imper- imperfections of other people's families. And, and there is a myth that, that, that there's perfectionism within the family that, that's there. Um, you know, how, many, how many formulas have you, wrote, you know, come across in books? You know, here's seven principles of child rearing. You know, I mean, there's a gazillion of them out there. Here's how you to raise successful children, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you know some of those parents, and you, you probably are some of those parents where you've done it right, and the kid still goes off the rail. They just do. You know, I mean, Proverbs says over and over again, you know, you can do it right, and it can still go south. You know, the farmer can work hard and hard, hard, hard and have a great harvest and then the windstorm comes along and wipes it away. Where's the justice in that? So I've, I've got to accept that my family is not perfect. My ancestry is not perfect. Oh, we love to, you know, Southerners love to talk about their relatives, you know, dead and gone, you know, and, and, and you know, make up stories about them along the way. My grandfather, he was a great storyteller. He'd always talk about his childhood and growing up and he'd always tell the same story twice, but he would tell it differently. And I said, Pops, you've told that story, but you told it differently this time. And he goes, well, that's so I can enjoy it. <laughs> you know? So, you know, we talk about our ancestors that, work, that, that are out there. Um, can I live with an imperfect family? Can I come to that place of grace in my life that my family's not perfect? I don't have that, that, that perfect family. I don't have that Facebook picture of family that, that, that's out there. Um, you know what the number one hated picture is on Facebook? Research shows the number one hated Facebook on pay, pay, um, picture on Facebook is family vacations. They, they, you know, because I know that family. <laughs> They're not that happy. 
You know, I, I see it in my business. You know, a couple comes in, they're talking divorce and how much they hate each other, and their their um, anniversaries the next week. And on Facebook, oh, my soulmate. <clears throat> and, and, you know, so we're, we're good at hiding. We are. We're good at wearing fig leaves uh, along the way. So again, it's important that that I truly, truly can I accept the imperfect family that that I, that I really am. Uh, the, the cheating that I, that I talked about, the uh, feeling cheated about a number of things that that begin to take place. Um, it, again, it's it's birthdays and holidays that are coming along, right? I mean, we're coming into a, it's supposed to be a great family time of year, you know, and that it, it, you know even Halloween, you know, you may have grown kids, but you still think about you know when they were when they were crumb crunchers. And, and, and we think about Thanksgiving. Everybody around the dinner table. We all want that Norman Rockwell picture. We want that Norman Rockwell painting that, that's out there. And when you're going through this, it ain't Norman Rockwell. It's just not. It's more like the Bundy family, you know. It's, it's just dysfunctional at, at some, some level that's there. And, and so I've got to realize, okay, maybe I have been cheated but I can't live there. I can't live in the bitterness of cheating that's, that, that's going there. Um, the thought of forgiveness, the, the thought of, of, of an act of grace, well, one, person to start with is forgive yourself through this process. You know, if you're beating yourself up, if you think you failed, if you think you've done something wrong, you're carrying around this guilt and shame that might be there, that's the first place that you got to start. Because if I can't forgive myself, I really can't forgive other people. I just can't. You know, I can do it in theory. I can do it intellectually. But in, in here, it's hard for me to, for, to, um, to get there. Um, Marcel Proust, who was a French novelist, said, he said, we are healed of suffering only by experiencing it to the full. And by experiencing to the full brings us to the place we forgive. And that's true. I think we have to experience the pain at its intensity, at its fullest. That, that, and, we go, and we want to avoid that. You know, we absolutely want to uh, avoid that. And, and part of the process is, do I choose to forgive? That child may never come home. I, it's just a reality in some, in some folks' lives, which is tragic, which is horrible. But still, can I go down that path of forgiving, letting go, surrendering, stop manipulating, stop trying to control? There's so much freedom in that. There really is. And, and, and again, it's, it's a heart thing that we're dealing with. It is an absolute heart thing that you and I are wrestling with along this way. So, you know, the nice thing is that you and I don't have to correct yesterday. Um, what about hope? You know, is there hope in this? Always there's hope in there. As long as the heart's beating, there's hope. But here's the key. Hope can be a dangerous thing. Whatever I'm putting my hope in, am I putting it in the wrong thing? Am I not putting in, in, in the true hope that's up there? If I'm putting my hope in all these other things out here, they can't give you what you're looking for. There's only one place that we can go for true hope that, that, that we need to find and we need to deal with it. Um, sometimes we want to distance ourselves for hope. You know, I don't want to set myself up. You know, I don't want to get my hopes up kind of thing. And Proverbs thirteen twelve says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. So we have to adjust our hope. Like I said, letting go is not equate to losing hope. Letting go is just letting go. I always have hope. And it's always got to be part of that, that that's out there. What, what can it do to the marriage? Um, like I said, it, there's stress on the blame game. That, that in most most couples have a little bit different parenting style. You know, one's more disciplined, one's more easygoing. I, I, I mean, it, it, it's just part of it. And, you know, it's, it, you finally get on the same page while if you have about three or four kids, you know, okay, we've got to do this together now instead of trying to do it our, our own way. But, but it can have its toll on marriage. So take care of the marriage. Uh, Phil and I were talking earlier, you know, and I always tell couples, I say, what are you doing to keep each other? You know, what are you doing to keep each other? You know, am I doing what I need to do to keep her, to keep him? We don't think that way. We think, what are they doing for me? We get very selfish sometimes in, in those relationships. But it, it, it's, it's part of it, and I encourage you to keep, keep looking at what are you going to do to keep each other. And I'm going to get to the solutions in just a minute, so let's drive it on. <coughs> Siblings. Other kids in the family, like I said, they can become very resentful. They can become very bitter. The elder brother, you know what? This son of yours 
went off and partied. This, and I love it. It says, he says, this son of yours. Um, and I was like, I don't imagine how he said that, you know. And, and he, he did. He said, this son of yours went out and spent all this money. You know, he was out drinking and carousing and doing all kinds of stuff that was out there. And you're going to give him a party? You're going to cut up the fatted calf? You want to give me Coke and pizza, is basically what he says. You won't give me a party. And, and, and we have those siblings that do. And I get some siblings are trying to protect mom and dad in the process. They are. They're very protective of their parents because of what Junior over here is doing. And, and I, I get that. And, and, but, it's, it's they, but, but again, sometimes the siblings need to be kept a little bit at arm's length in this process and helping them understand that their anger many times is not helping the situation that's there. And, and I always bring up the question of, you know, where's God in all this? I mean, does heaven not seem silent sometimes when you're going through this? I mean, does it just seem silent? You know, where did you go, God? And, and again, we're looking for something. Throw me a bone. Throw me a crumb that's out there. Um, David, in I think it's Psalm 37, 38, 39, somewhere in there, he goes, are you asleep? Rouse yourself. You know, your servant down here is hurting with all this. My favorite psalm is Psalm 88. It's written by this guy named Heman. And Heman was one of the Korahites. He was actually the grandson of Samuel, the prophet. And David appointed the Korahites, and they wrote the 40s and 80s in the Psalms that are there, if you're familiar with that. But the very last line in this psalm, you know, most psalms start out, you know, God, my enemies are after me, I'm in trouble. And by the end of the psalm, I'll praise you all the days of my life. This psalm starts off dark and ends dark. The last line in that psalm says, darkness is a better friend than you are, God. And I've often wondered, you know, did Simon and Garfunkel get that line, you know, from that? But it, it, again, it's, it, it starts off dark. It starts off this and, and, and this. And he puts God in the docks. I mean, he cross-examines him. You know, he, he, he's, he's very irreverent. He doesn't withhold. But you know what the beauty of that psalm is there? It, it says this. When you and I are desperate, God has a tremendous understanding that we will say just about anything. We will. When we're in that pit, when we're in that hole, that we become desperate. And we will say things that, that are like that. And God's, it doesn't affect God. He was still God. He still loved Heman. You know, Heman, imagine this. You know, Heman was wrong. You know, he said, I've been this way all my life. Darkness overrules me. All of this psalm. And here you and I are 2,500 years later talking about his artwork. You know, he was wrong. And so and when, it, when it feels like God, the darkness feels permanent. It just does. It feels like it's not going to go away. And, 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 you know, every once in a while you might get a crumb. You might get a bone. <coughs> but, you know, I, I can say, you know, emphatically that, you know, moralism is not going to change anything. Religiosity is not going to change everything. But does my pain drive me into a deeper, deeper, meaningful relationship with God? It does. It does. It drives us to Him. It's, it's like, you know, when, when Jesus looked at his disciples and said, are you going to leave me? Peter said, where are we going to go? You know, you alone have the words of life. That's where we get to. He gets us in this box. He gets us in this corner where we say, where are we going to go? That, that's out there. And, and, and that's part of the, the, the change that you and I have to experience that we're going through. Um, what do you gain through all this? In, when you're in the middle of it, you see, I see no purpose in this. I see absolutely no purpose in this. Well, I tell you one thing that I learned was humility. I absolutely learned humility. I mean, you know, pride is the sin below the sin. It always is. Um, we, we tend to lose our idealism. Life's hard. Life's difficult. Life has, you know, those things. Um, you know, we, we, we become less judgmental of other people. I can tell you you do that. It just takes that judgment and criticism away of other people. So we do gain some things in this process that, that's out there. We stop blaming other people. You know, we do. We just quit pointing the finger. And, and we start owning our own stuff that's out there. I mentioned about the marriage. It can strengthen a marriage. I mean, it can pull a couple tight, tight, tight together, which that you want to have. Um, I think one thing I learned, too, is I learned how to tolerate a lot more. You know, stuff just didn't matter that I thought mattered. You, you just begin to let go of that stuff. And I think you learn courage. 
in this process. I think that you learn to be courageous. Um, I, I think that, you know, you, you, you learn to be more outward and, and onward and up and those kind of things. Um, and, and so, yeah, we do gain something in this process that, that's there. Um, several things. You know, so how do we deal with all this? Well, you know, what, what is the way that we, we need to do this? Well, one last thing, too, is, you know, we're always looking for purpose and meaning in something. The, the, the philosophical question, why, always gets asked. Death, tragedy, it's the wrong question to ask because it never gets answered. We need to ask the practical question, how do I get through this? What do I need to be doing? And, and, you know, parents experience some kind of tragedy, loss of a child or something. That why question, it just doesn't get answered. And we try to attribute meaning to it, purpose in it. We want to, we want to know why this took place. And, and, and many times it, 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 it just doesn't get answered. So I've got to focus more on the practical question of how. And that kind of brings us to, you know, the uh, last few points that are here. Like I said, I've already mentioned some of these. Number one is is that letting go that we're there. Um, you, you know, if they're a lot younger, there's times you do have to step in. But when they're adult children, there's times where you got it's got to come to hands off. Um, and you know, I've worked. Fair and John have referred a number of families to me over the years that are in this situation, and 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 I tell them the same thing. I say. You know, it's got to be hands-off. It has to be. You've got to come to that place where you can't fix them. You cannot change them. Stay inside that hula hoop of yours. Focus on what you have control over. You know how many people don't want to hear that? Most of them. You know, but it's until they get to that point that they have nothing else other than to let go. You know, they may not be just ready to hear that just yet, but there does come a time and place where they, they do have to let go seriously. The second thing that we need to do to get better is I've got to face my feelings. Um, we, we all feel a great loss when this happens, when our kids willfully turn their backs on us and, and you know, on the things that we have, have wanted them to learn, their faith, their religion, their culture, their family, just like the prodigal son. It was an assault on that family. This is an assault on your family. It, it, it just is. And, and that's where I've got to rec- realize I've got to face those inner feelings that there. And you know what? You run the gamut. Sadness, depression, anger, hopelessness, feeling good, down, up, down, up, down. It's a roller coaster ride. This is not a linear line. It is not. It's a, it's a squiggly line that we, we have to walk there. Third thing is you know, keep your head up. And, and what do I mean by that? Um, it, it is time in, in your life that I cannot focus on this child to consume me. i got to keep my head up, and what does that mean? That means being adventurous. That means going and doing things. That means having a life uh, of getting out there and participating in life whatsoever. Uh, if I live in the future, I get anxious, I get worried. If I live in the past, I get angry and embarrassed and ashamed. I got to be living in the here and right now. But anyway, that's what you and I have control over right now is is the here and now. The fourth thing I think that we have to do to get better is we have to let them fail. We have to let them fail, and and the the, the that's the only time. When did the prodigal come to his senses? You know, when he's in a pigsty, when he had nothing, absolutely nothing, and I, you know we always think, well, maybe that's their bottom. Well. It might be temporarily their bottom, but they're back at it three weeks later. You know, they're out of jail and they're back with their buddies and doing all that kind of stuff that there. And, and that, what that means when it means let them hit bottom, that means I've got to have some good internal boundaries. You know, I've got to have limits to set with myself. Don't go there. Don't touch it. Don't pick up the gauntlet. Don't jump in the pool. And they're going, come on, come on in. I've got to have, and sometimes that is the most difficult thing to do is to say no to yourself. It's not so much saying no to them. It's here that we have the harder time with. Because the heart of a parent, you know. I, I remember when I was using this example. When I, my kids were real small. Um, you know, if a kid comes into your bedroom in the middle of the night, you know, if your spouse says, you know, will you get me a drink of water? Well, if they're not sick or anything, you know, get it yourself. I'm sleeping. But if that child comes into the room, what do you do? You're out of that bed. You get them that drink of water. A child is the only one that has the greatest access to a parent's heart. A spouse doesn't. Nobody else does, but a child 
has access to that heart like nobody else. Nobody else. Here's the beauty of our relationship with God. We're His children. We have access to the heart of God in this process that we're going through. So, so again, having those good boundaries. Um, I talked about, remember the other kids. There are other siblings, you, you know, that I've got to focus on. I, this cannot consume me and take away from those other kids that are there. <coughs> and if it does, I've got a good friend. Um, I had lunch with him um, sometimes last year. Great guy. He's got four grown children, and three of his kids are very successful. They're out there knocking the world out and everything. But he's got that one kid. Just can't get it together. Does stupid stuff. Gets in trouble. He's, he's in his late 30s. Might be 30 by now. Late 20s. Might be in his 30s by now. And he said to me, he goes, I love my kids. I love my three kids that are so successful. But he said, there's just something about him. And that's true when you have a prodigal. There's just something about them because they're in trouble. You know, the other kid's not worried about it. You love them just as much. I mean, you don't compare any. But when he said that to me, I went, you know, that, that is so true. And he is, I don't have favorites, he said, but there's just something about him that tugs at my heart more than the others do. So remember the other kids and make sure you do it. Be expectant. And what do I mean by that? Um, you know, we, we are fearful that we're going to get that phone call in the middle of the night, that the worst of the worst of the worst that's happened. And, and this is where I've got to realize he may be on your reach or beyond my reach in that, but he's not beyond God's reach. And I've got to come to that place. I'm telling you, it is spiritual warfare that we're in right now. And, of course, you know, don't rescue them too soon. You know, if, if there comes a time and place where you know this might be their turning point, sometimes it's fine to step in. It, it just is. And then I've got to offer grace. When that prodigal son came down that dusty road, he had, a, he had already planned out what he was going to say to his dad. Dad, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I've, I've sinned against my family. He says, if you'll make me a servant, you know, I'll pay back the debt. It's basically what he said. He said, make me a servant. Nowhere in that dad's mind. What did that dad do? Dad did what everything that was culturally wrong. Men did not run back then. They did not run. He lifted his skirt and he ran. And it says it literally pounced on his son and he kissed him. And he said, get a ring, get a robe, get sandals, cut the fatty calf. And we're having a party. My son is home. That's grace. That is absolute grace. He, I, 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 you know, he's not the father that was standing on that porch and going, here comes that guitar-toting hippie son of mine down this road. Draft card burning, you know. He didn't. You know, that no good. I bet he's coming back and asking for more money. No. There was grace there. There was absolute grace in that father's heart. And that's what we need to offer when that time does come, that we offer them nothing, nothing more than grace to take place in their life. So yeah, you've got those things, the steps that we begin to take when we're dealing with these emotions, what we feel as a family, <clears throat> and what we feel you know, when we have the prodigal. And, and again, it, it, it relates so much to the, to, the, to the father of that son because he was there. Um, you, you know, you and I are good at hiding our pain. We really are. You know, we're, we're good with fig leaves. We show up to church and we cover up and and, you know, people ask us how we're doing, and we're fine. And, you know, well, let me tell you about my day. That's, sometimes that's the last thing that they want to hear from you. <laughs> so, so they start avoiding you in the future because last time I asked how you were doing, oh, my God, we stood outside the church for 30 minutes. The beauty is that we're good at hiding, but we have a friend that's seeking us out. We just do. And you know what? He's seeking your son out. He's seeking him, and he's seeking out the emotions that we feel. Psalm 38, 9 says this, All my longings lie before you, O God. My sighing is not hidden from you. It's there. In 1965, there was a, a, a lieutenant, a lieutenant Daniel Dawson. He flew reconnaissance missions in Vietnam for the Army. And, and one day, his plane was shot down over the, um, over the Viet Cong area, and nobody heard from him. Was he captured? Was he dead? The families went up the chain of the command with the military trying to figure out. Nobody knew. He was just MIA. Well, Daniel had a brother named Don Dawson that lived in Southern California. He was, kind of a, he was the hippie brother. This was back in the 60s. And Don, uh, basically, he left his wife with 20 bucks, got on a plane, and flew to Vietnam. And, and the base was um, Han, Han Boss. I think the name of the Air Force base was that was there that he went to. Anyway, Don said, I, I'm going to find my brother. 
And uh, he, he sets out. They all told him he was crazy. You're going to get killed. Something's going to happen to you. Don't do this. He goes right into the Viet Cong, and he's got these flyers. And he, he became known as the brother. And he, he kind of got a reputation among the enemy up there. And they, I said, well, no, we haven't seen it. So finally he met uh, a group that, that captured him. And they, they had his brother's flight jacket. And they said, your brother's dead. They showed him the grave. And, um, and they, they, just, they kept him in prison for about three or four months. They said they treated him well. They didn't harm him anyway. And finally they said, go home. He said, you know, when the war's over, you can come back and get your brother that was there. And, and, and you know, he went home. Now, the, the point of that story is this. You and I have a brother that's searching for us. You and I have a brother that's searching for your child. That's the importance of that story. Is he came back home, he didn't find his brother, he found out his brother had died. But we have a brother that's looking for us right now. One of my prayers every day is, God, find me. Find me. Find me. You know, I'm lost. You know, find my heart. Find who I am at times. And, and, and I love that story because it truly, truly illustrates the relationship that's out there. And so the letting go, the surrendering, and doing all those things that we have to do is part of the process that we go through. Now, I hope this was helpful. Um, you, you know, I, John always accuses me of fire hosing everybody, so with, with a lot of information. So, a- any comments, questions? Yes? Yeah. There's always a fine line where you're standing in the hula hoop and what's going on outside of that, you're going, oh my gosh, I'm getting ready to fall off the cliff. Mm-hmm. And as parents, I mean, to stand inside the hoop is like, I got to step outside the hoop. Right. So isn't there a point where, and you, you did mention that, you know, a tippy toe outside the hoop to give them a couple of phone numbers to call if they're adult children or, um, saving their life if they've overdosed or something like that. I mean, there's, there's got to be a point where stepping out of the hula hoop is not all bad. No, but again, i got to ask myself the question, am I rescuing? Okay. Am I doing something that I don't need to be doing right now, that they need to experience the consequences of this choice? But you're right, if it's life-threatening or something like that, then absolutely. If it's enabling, then, then stay inside the hoop. Yeah, and, and that's, that's the, where you define the line right there. And, and I agree with you. Give them resources. Call this place. This place is free. You know, they'll take you and they'll detox you with what's ever out there. Anybody else? Questions? Yes, ma'am. What is the line between enabling and rescuing? Well, I, you know, I think enabling is, is more allowing their behavior to continue on. I'm, I'm kind of supporting the behavior. I'm, I'm letting it happen. And, and, you know, am, am, I, am I giving them money? Am I doing things that they don't need? I had a couple come see me at least years and years and years ago. They had a prodigal son. And uh, dad, very successful businessman in Atlanta, very, very well known. And, and they come in and, you know, Junior had flunked out of two or three different colleges. He was just out there, you know, doing his thing. And, and I said to them, um, I said, well, here's what I would do. Uh, first of all, I said to him, I said, where's Junior? And he goes, well, he's in Colorado skiing. And I said, Junior ain't got a problem. <laughs> Where do I sign up? Yeah. And, and uh, the, I could see the dad getting kind of flushed like he was mad. I thought, God, he's going to clean my clock. And, and I said to him, I said, I'm not the first one to tell you that, am I? And he goes, no, you're not. Something ha- it's not what I said. I, he'd been told that a hundred times. It just finally clicked with him that they were the problem in this scenario. And I said, here's what I would do. I'd cut him off. Let him run through his friends. And, and I said, here, I'm, I'm going to predict what he's going to do. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna try to emotionally blackmail y'all. I'm never coming home. You'll never see me again. If I ever get married, if I ever have kids, you'll never see blah, blah, blah. I'm writing all out of my life. Well, uh, they came two or three times. They got what they needed to do. And, and, and the dad kept calling me. I said, well, let's just stay in touch. And he, he called me. He said, this just isn't working. He's not changing. Well, come to find out, guess what mama was doing? You know, mama was, you know, that's enabling. You know, they, she finally, that caused a whole other set of problems between them. And, and um, you know, finally they got on the same page, and it took about 24 months for him to realize they weren't going to budge. So it's not a quick fix, but that was enabling. 
you know, and, and to some degree rescuing him in that process. I think, you know, rescuing, I put it in the same categories, enabling. You know, am I, am I making sure that no pain comes into their life? That's rescuing. Am I making sure they don't have consequences for their behavior? That's rescuing. You know, am I letting them stay in jail about a week and let them figure this out? Or am I running in there and, oh, my baby, you know, they're going to feed him bad food. So, I mean, is that, okay, all right. I know my experience, because it's gone on a long time, my daughter had children and she was doing drugs. We had custody of the children for three years. But anyway, as you get removed from it many years later, she did not know when I did do things. We'd deliver groceries, um, pay the rent because the children need a roof over their heads, or put tires on the car because they would have an accident, whatever. To this day, and she is still doing drugs, she doesn't remember me doing anything for her, anything. And so when you get into that cycle of, well, I have to do this, I should, or she won't love me, or she, people think I'm awful, or what, whatever was going on in my mind for those 30 years. To this day, even during her times when she's not doing drugs, she honestly, that's all blacked out. And so you, know, you get in that cycle. You, you think you're being appreciated. <laughs> But there is no appreciation because they're not there in that place. If I had saved all that money and put it away for if and when she may someday mm -hmm. be clean, um, or for her children, um, I would have been better. Because she's still where she was 35 years ago. Well, you bring up a great point. When there's children involved, somebody's got to be the champion. Somebody has to champion those children, protect them. It's but defects isn't always helpful because we have them for two and a half years. We had five with us. Wow. And then defects. And y'all are only 39 years old. You look a lot older. <laughs> five kids. <laughs> um, but defects just decided they were ready to go back and, and they should not have gone back. Yeah. But you have no control over those moments when. You know, we talk about personality disorders a lot in our culture today. You know, we got narcissists, borderlines, histrionics, antisocial, sociopaths. Many times, the the addict exhibits a personality disorder. Doesn't mean they are, but that includes. It's about them. Nothing's going to get in between me and my drug. Nothing is going to get between me and whatever it is. And if you do, there's going to be hell to pay. Um, and 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 the personality disorder that they exhibit is there's no empathy. There's no appreciation. It's 110% about them. Um, life is all about them. They're incredibly manipulative. They're very controlling. Um, they're victims. You know, they play that victim mo mode to the hilt. Um, you, you remember Sanford and Son? You remember when Fred had to confront Lamont? You know, or, or Lamont had to confront Fred. You know, oh, Elizabeth, here comes the big one. It's, it's, that's what they do. You know, they, they go into this mode of, if you confront me, I, I'm just going to be a, a, a puddle of water. Or they use anger. Don't you dare confront me. You know what happens when, when you confront me. You know, I, I put holes in the wall and tear up everything. So, so they, it's, it's, it's like they exhibit those, that narcissistic borderline personality disorder many, many times. And they, they don't realize that um, um, what they're doing is the ripple effect that it has on everybody else because they don't care. There's not a conscience. There's, there's not a moral compass there when they're all caught up in all this. Well, I, I think the most common personality disorder that you will see dealing with that would be borderline personality. I'd say borderline and narcissist are probably well, the two. If you're successful in treating the borderline, you create a narcissist. They don't get better. <laughs> well, it's now side shot. Yeah. But, but I, but, and, and that's exactly the point is that that they are not ever going to lose that that personality. No. And um, listening to you tonight, it, it, re, it just re, rekindled some thoughts that I had that that we have a grandson that's very talented. He, he has a tremendous work ethic. He's really good mechanically. Um, 
and he's going to, he can make a living for himself. And what he is lacking is a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have, he, he has never had the modeling of what a normal life is. And, and so my, my, my communication with him in the future is going to be, thanks to you, if I told you what to do, it would be so easy you wouldn't believe me. The truth is get a relationship with God mm -hmm. and figure it out for yourself. And I don't know that you can do anything more than that. Mm -mm. No. You can model. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, yeah, that's what you exactly. keep doing. You model the behavior. Exactly. You know, more is caught than taught with children. Yes. You know, I don't know about y'all, when I tell my kids to do something all day long and then the neighbor tell them to do it and they do it. You know, so... <clears throat> well, thank you for that. Um, anything else? Going once. Going twice. Well, thank you all so much. This was, I, you know, I always enjoy doing this. So, I, like I said, I'm, I always want you to walk away with something. <laughs>